Tonight's program takes us backstage to witness firsthand the creation of, of Start to Finish mounted on the American stage. Ohio does not exist. It is an imaginary hellscape created expressly for this broadcast. The Ohio Reds are silly, Cincinnati serves bad chili, and Dave Chappelle is an ah, sorry, is an apocryphal fabrication. But together, they present an authentic account of the inner workings of a miserable theatrical production. Our story begins, of course, with a podcast. Hayden's Entertainment Hour, native of Ohio, of this fabricated land. Well known for his perfect, pitch-perfect Whitey impression and his gargantuan poetic ranking of all Adam Sandler films. Wow. You know, I think for a moment, we have to just sit here and first off applaud that because that's a pretty good intro. Um, but secondly, I'm here to uh, give you your two weeks notice, Fahrenheit. You are uh, fired for making fun of uh, Ohio. What? Wait, what do you mean? Well, I'm sorry. We're having to cancel the show entirely because insulting Ohio and comparing it to be worse than Michigan is simply not true. I, I never said it's worse than Michigan. Well, 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 you implied it by saying Ohio is a shithole and, and therefore you didn't understand the play. So we have to fire you. Wait, wait, no, 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 you can't do this to me. No, I'm sorry, that's it. Everybody, take Fahrenheit away. We're canceling the entire no! show. No, 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 I don't even care no! about trying to save this damn podcast. Nobody wants no, to call please, Ohio ever. Me. Take him away. Ah! Take him away. <laughs> All right, and welcome back to uh, Hayden's Entertainment Hour. Yes, uh, Fahrenheit was killed off screen for that intro bit, and... Uh, Thank you, Fahrenheit, for uh, memorizing the opening of Asteroid City, because I myself could not have done that monologue justice, so uh, good on you. That was a really good opening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I yeah. think that was correct. Like, I'm yeah, pretty sure I think... was talking about that. Yeah, I think for the most part you nailed it, which I was kind of like, damn, he actually got pretty much all the hard words and like shit that Brian Cranston says, so... <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, no, I just love this movie a lot, but yeah, I do know that we're not just talking about this movie, unfortunately. I think. Yeah, we're gonna be uh, talking about a old uh, archaeologist that uh, he goes out past his bedtime and his big adventure is trying to get the uh, last box of raisin bran before everybody else in the store does. Um, but we'll get to that one after because uh, I want to start with Asteroid City because, uh, yes, today on Hayden's Entertainment Hour, we're going to be talking about Asteroid City um, as well as Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, but we're going to save that one for last. Um, Asteroid City, as a lot of people know, is the brand new Wes Anderson movie. Wes Anderson had been planning this movie for a while. Uh, it kind of had some production stumbles because Bill Murray was originally supposed to be in the movie. Um, but Bill Murray got into some trouble with an actress on set somewhere for another movie. And so Wes Anderson said, you're not doing it. Um, and then he brought in Tom Hanks, somebody that relatively doesn't do these types of movies. And he was hoping that hopefully he could do something different with his career. Uh, the movie was delayed due to some pandemic issues, but it did get made and eventually was put out to the big screen. And I am happy to say, as somebody that likes Wes Anderson, you and me have reviewed the French Dispatch before on the podcast. Um, mm. This is another certified hit, courtesy of uh, Wes Anderson. By the way, I thought Bill Murray was supposed to be with Tom Hanks originally, right? He was, before uh, all of the controversy came out, he was yeah. supposed to be. Yeah, that, that's why I remember, but yeah. Um, I want to say, though, like before like we delve into uh, um, Asteroid City, I will say, like, 
I did have a great experience with the French this match, but I want to say that's not as great as when I first watched it. It's still great. It's still good, right? But I think after watching Asteroid City, it made me reevaluate like how Wes Anderson tells his stories. Because like yeah, a lot of yeah. people on like Twitter, on TikTok, are like, oh, let me make this like Wes Anderson style like Spider-Man movie or like an X-Men movie or a horror movie. They're not really getting it. Right? And yeah. I've seen the AI art too that people have made and they're like, oh, look, it looks just like a Wes Anderson movie. And I'm like, no, you're kind of missing the point that Wes Anderson doesn't just look quirky. There's a lot more to it. Uh, he is very much somebody that understands dry humor and direction and all his movies have a point to them or a message to them. And most people that try to mimic it, they just think that it's just, oh, it's the funny dialogue and it's the weird colors and everything's very dry. But you don't understand that like Wes Anderson has a theme to most of his movies and they all have a big message and theme by the end of the movie. And yeah. And again, it goes back to the fact that like he's a storyteller first and foremost, I think. Like, yeah. A lot of his best movies feature that like. I'd say the closest thing to Asteroid City is something akin to, like, the Grand Budapest Hotel, where that's, like, a woman reading a book about an author going to a hotel, and it he meets the hotel owner that tells his story. Like, it's a story within a story within a story. Yeah. Right? And... If anything, that should be the groundwork for most of Wes Anderson's movies. A lot, and a lot of people that won't get that are kind of missing the point. I think. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. So, um, as somebody that likes Wes Anderson movies, this is one that I was looking forward to because when I saw the trailer for it, I was like, okay, everything in this looks like it's going to work because Jason Schwartzman is the lead character. Uh, we had a couple other big name actors that like to work with him. The only newcomer that I was kind of worried about was Tom Hanks because usually I don't know if he'd work in these types of movies. And I was very excited for this one. And after watching it, I have to say it was a bit unexpected because this is in my top five Wes Anderson movies now. I think I have this at number four behind a couple other ones. I think I still have Grand Budapest Hotel, The Royal Tenenbaums, and... Oh boy, I'll have to check after the podcast, but it's either Fantastic Mr. Fox or Rushmore, I believe is the third one. Um, but I love this movie. Um, I will admit I was blown away by it. I think this is another certified hit, but I also think that the themes of this movie and this movie overall is one of Wes Anderson's strongest because this one gets into a lot of different themes, whether it's grief or what human life is about and what it's worth living. I just think this movie has really strong themes overall compared to some of Wes Anderson's other movies. It's it's funny you say that because it's also in my top five Wes Anderson films. Oh Although, really? Yeah. For me though, I'm kind of stuck as far as like which one I prefer more because right now the ones that are tied for me are Asteroid City and Darjeeling Limited. Okay. I love those movies, but like for two different reasons. I think that Asteroid City is technically the better movie. I connect more with Darjeeling Limited a little bit more. That's fair. But then, obviously, yeah, above those two is the Grand Budapest Hotel as well. Mm-hmm. And then I added Fantastic Mr. Fox in second. And then my favorite one is probably, I don't know if I mentioned this in the other podcast, but uh, my fa- one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Z. Sue. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. 
and that, that's kind of where I stand right now. That is completely fair. So, uh, I guess I'll give the uh, quick little plot synopsis of Asteroid City. So, uh, world-changing events spectacularly disrupt the itinerary of a junior stargazers slash space cadet convention in an American desert town circa 1955, or as the town is called, Asteroid City. Um, first thing I want to talk about with this movie is that the movie itself does not take place in some wacky Wes Anderson universe. In fact, Asteroid City, as Brian Cranston says at the beginning of the movie, does not exist. It is written by a playwright, and the entire movie is basically a stage play of the stage play performance that he writes for the movie. And this cast, I have to admit, the first time I saw it, I went, it's big, but it's a lot bigger than I thought. Because you got some big names in here that worked with him before, like Adrian Brody was in here, Jason Schwartzman was in here, uh, Tony Rivoli was in here, I believe Brian Cranston's worked with him before. I mean, there's just so many great names that show up in this movie that you see in other Wes Anderson works. Obviously, Tilda Swinton is one of the biggest because she's been in a lot of Wes Anderson's movies before. But one thing that I loved about this was it brought a lot of newcomers to the table. There's a lot of first-time child actors that are working in this movie. And at the same time, the fact that it's a stage play that's telling the stage play that's also taking place in another story about the stage right himself is kind of brilliant within itself because the opening of the movie, it's black and white, it's in a TV station. We slow cut away from Brian Cranston to Edward Norton that plays Conrad Earp, who's the playwright of the entire thing. He introduces all of our characters, tells them who each of the people are in real life and what characters they'll be playing. And then he talks about how the movie is split into three acts. And he talks about how long each act will be and where it ends. And I love the setup of this entire thing because like you said with the Grand Budapest being a story within a story within a story, this is a stage play written by a guy who's telling the life of how he wrote the stage play and then the actor within the stage play talking about how he doesn't understand the play itself and it's all so brilliantly done once again by Wes Anderson and yeah the characters are fictional the text is hypothetical and the events of and the events are an apocryphal fabrication basically yeah as, yeah. as Ron Cranston says yeah um, but like yeah no I just it's crazy that like Wes Anderson is like a indie director that's able to work with like A-list actors and mm -hmm. yeah it's as you were saying it's like there are some people that you just didn't expect to be in it like Tom Hanks I I was very surprised that like Margot Robbie was taking her hand in uh, a Wes Anderson film as well that was huge and I think the biggest surprise for me I'm drawing a blank I feel bad because, uh, what should we call it? She showed up in the Dungeons and Dragons movie. She played. Oh, Dora. yeah, Sophia, Sophia Lewis. Yes. Yeah, no, I think her being in this movie was the biggest surprise for me because I actually really like her as an actress. Like, yeah, she showed up in the Yet movies, but she's also been in this one show for Netflix that, um, that um got canceled unfortunately i would want to see that or like revitalize it's called uh i'm not okay with this oh i've heard of it yeah yeah no that show was really good i want to see her more stuff basically and she does a really good job here and also in dungeons of dragons one of the best movies of this year as well for me yeah, yeah <laughs> i understand that yeah 
Um, but yeah, there there's a lot to unpack with this movie. First off, one thing that I love about this movie in particular is that this is supposed to be an homage to the 1950s B-movies because um, one thing I love about the color palette of this movie that Wes Anderson kind of pointed out is it's supposed to look like the bleach colors that you would see on a postcard. So it's supposed to look like if you were traveling out west towards like Arizona or Nevada or some of those states, you would see these bleach postcards that kind of have like these very 1950s colors on them that are like from Asteroid City or something like that. And that's something that I think really works for the movie because... When we open with the movie in the stage play itself, obviously it sets up all the different places, the gas station, the diner, the actual crater where the asteroid made impact, the unfinished highway. I mean, there's so many great little set pieces that are set up just like a stage play would be. And the movie moves through it in some of the funniest ways possible. When their car gets there, it breaks down. They have no idea what's wrong with the car, so they take it to a mechanic. The mechanic beats on it and then goes, oh, it'll charge you nothing. Turns it on and the piece falls out that he has no idea what it is. So they're forced to go into a diner where it's very dry. It feels kind of like they're in a almost nuclear future type of situation. They sit down at the diner. A big rattle goes off. It's the atomic bomb. There's just so much great setup and cinematography and production design in the beginning of this movie to where it eases you right into it. And the jokes are some of the best in the beginning of the movie. Like I said, the car breaking down and there being a part the mechanic doesn't understand, I think is hilarious. Them sitting in the diner and the three daughters talking about how they're not princesses was kind of funny. I like the fact that the quirkiness of Jason Schwartzman points out that he kind of finds beauty in disastrous things, which, you know, is a little bit of a theme for his character going forward in the movie. But Wes Anderson is a guy that will ease you into his movies very slowly. And that's something that I really appreciate about him with the beginning of this movie. Also, uh... I don't know if you mentioned him yet, but uh, I, I think we forgot to mention this actor too. Like besides like my hawk who plays like a teacher, mm-hmm. but uh, Steve Carell as the motel manager is probably yeah. my favorite character. Yeah, he's damn good in this. <laughs> like he's he's kind of funny. Like especially just due to the fact that like he kind of like runs this little motel and he ha- has like all these vending machines that have like I really like how he. I was just like accepting everybody that was like an oddity like there was a kid that was like daring everything yeah and he was just like drinking a bunch of water he has like all these vending machines that can like make you a martini or can sell land and such I don't yeah. know it, it was it's just quite the concept for me yeah and it makes this world feel very lived in it does and i do appreciate that too is how each of his worlds feel lived in um but then there are other characters that show up in this too like we have midge campbell that's played by scarlett johansson who's trying to play a big uh, who's trying to become a big name actress and i do love the back and forth that they have in this movie between jason schwartzman and scarlett johansson because she kind of feeds in a little bit about how she wants to be a great actress but she also has this daughter that's a brilliant scientist and she doesn't know how she can balance both while Jason Schwartzman is trying to, you know, obviously make a couple moves and he really likes her and everything like that, but he himself doesn't know how to process his own grief and he talks about how he's not sure how his children feel about their mother passing away and there's a lot of great back and forth between these two characters and I love how we'll have moments where a lot of chaos happens or we'll cut to the other side characters having their little shenanigans and then we'll go back to the two of them sitting in their opposite motel rooms and just staring at each other out the window while they either recite a play or they talk to each other about their problems and it's just really thematic because the two of them once again are kind of talking a little bit about what their purpose in life is what their cosmic purpose and reasoning is and i do appreciate that scenes like that do have a purpose in this movie and the way that's framed too it it does come back to probably my favorite scene in the movie and it's the one that uh like i i think if not brian cranston's monologue 
it's yeah. it's like somewhere towards the end and i think i have some of the lines memorized for it and because it's just so powerful it's so moving i can't wait to talk about it real quick yeah um tom hanks who was the one that i feared um so the first time i watched it i was like okay i don't think he works really well in this and then the second time i watched it i was like okay he's a little bit better the second time around but i still understand that maybe there would have been a better actor for this role i don't know it's just maybe it's the elvis trauma that's still in my mind because (laughs) i can't shake his god-awful performance in that movie um but i you know i think he did pretty well with the material for the most part because he plays stanley zach who is the father of the mother that passed away and he basically does not like anything about augie steenbeck he doesn't like the character he doesn't like him he just simply talks about how his four daughter or how about how his three or his three granddaughters and his grandson are the only things that he really cares about and i do kind of like his dry sensibility of trying to be like a grandfather figure for them like when he first arrives his three granddaughters are burying the ashes of their mother and they're hoping to do like a voodoo ritual to bring her back and he tries to sensibly talk to them about giving her a proper burial and they scream at him and i do like how disconnected these girls are especially because they don't recognize him at first and he tries to come in to give some sort of sensibility to the situation but amidst all the chaos and the girls not really understanding what's going on he kind of looks like the asshole and i do appreciate how throughout the course of the movie he doesn't really stray from that character he doesn't forgive augie in the end he still admits that he doesn't really like him much and he doesn't think he's doing well as a father but I really do appreciate the fact that Tom Hanks did the best that he could with this character. You wanna bet? (laughs) (laughs) No, stop. No. No, shut down the podcast. No, God. (laughs) No. (laughs) But anyways, yeah. Like I I get what you mean though. Like with Tom Hanks' performance. I I definitely didn't like him in Elvis either. But and also I've seen him in another movie called uh, a man called Otto. And oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't I, that one was like super depressing. It's I I I don't recommend personally, but I don't know. I I personally didn't mind him. Like I really liked his line de- deliveries in some areas like like when uh like when Jason Schwartzman's character, he's like you never really liked me, d- did you? And then he's like never really loved you like, I don't know. <laughs> like that was that was kind of cute i think and then yeah. like yeah and it's as you said like he never really forgives augie in the end he never really communicates that he likes him but at the very least i think at by the end i'm pretty sure he somewhat accepts him as like a father I guess. Yeah, I think that's one thing that maybe I wish they would have had or added a little bit more to was that. Because in the end, I was like, okay, he either still doesn't give a shit about him being like a dad and he just kind of accepts that he's going to have to be the best father figure he can through his grief, or he does free him in the end. And it's never really like clear, which maybe that's kind of the point is Wes Anderson wanted to make it ambiguous for the audience. But I think that's the one thing that I was kind of like, maybe that could have been fleshed out a little more. Yeah, no, and, and I agree. Like, I yeah. wouldn't really say that he's a bad part either. No, I don't think he's a bad part. But, yeah, no, but I, yeah. I get what you mean if people think that he's, like, the weakest, like, technically. Yeah. 
Um, so as for the asteroid itself, which was the big title of the movie, was Asteroid City. Um, we have this big, like I said, Stargazers convention where all these kids are going to get medals for their outstanding achievements. It is led by this general character, General Griff Gibson, that's played by the wonderful Jeffrey Wright, who, as we last saw, was in uh, Wes Anderson's last movie, The French Dispatch. Um, he was great as the reporter that talked about the police captain's son getting stolen. I love that story, and I love. I think it's my favorite story of the entire Same movie here. in that movie. Yeah, um, but he's back as Griff Gibson. I love his little monologue where he tells the story of his life, about how he started off as a farmhand, about how he got married, and it led him to where he is now, and he's taking care of this asteroid crater. I love how quickly he exposits each of the kids' different things that they brought. Like, one kid created a jetpack, one kid created a laser beam, um, hit, uh, Woodrow created some sort of patriotic moon uh, messaging thing where he could put like little symbols on the moon. Um, some of the other kids made some wacky stuff like um, one of the girls uh, made, I, I think it was like a nuclear powered sort of fission thing that was able to revive plants, but you couldn't eat off them. But I do love everything about this. And the entire science division is helmed by Tilda Swinton's character, Dr. Hickenlooper, that's going to help them look at this. I think it's supposed to be implied some sort of lunar eclipse or something like that. And everything in the sequence that's set up with the asteroid being this tiny little asteroid that made this giant crater, I think is hilarious. But it's when they actually get to the actual eclipse that the movie kind of plays into that whimsicalness that Wes Anderson is really good with because the alien scene with Mr. Jeff Goldblum might be one of my favorite Wes Anderson moments ever. I love the dryness of the scene. I love the music of the scene, the colors of the scene. And I just love the joke itself of this alien coming down, grabbing the asteroid, posing for a picture, and then just coughing and going back up and going away. It's so well-crafted to the point of where I was kind of like, God damn, Wes Anderson is one of the few directors that can turn the silliest little premise into something so meaningful. I think it was just bizarre to me because like I did remember Jeff Goldblum being on the uh on the credits I'm like who's he gonna be like I was just waiting for him to like quip up and such because like he plays a really good character in the left aquatica Captain Hennessy mm-hmm. and then like it, he shows up later in the scene I'm like oh my god and <laughs> because like I I was for sure thinking that like the alien was like a stop motion thing because that's kind of the epitome of the I thought yeah that's what I thought at first too was it was stop motion and for the most part it could be like there might be some elements but like no they're, they're like later down the line we actually get to see like a full on suit I don't know I, it was so jarring to me for me and yeah. I, I really like that yeah, I and, do, yeah too. because it's probably one of the most mesmerizing scenes in the movie. I remember yeah. they were like looking inside a box and then they saw like a little green dot. They all look up and it's like, oh my god. I don't know. It's just like the whole spectacle of it all. It's so cool. It is. It's it's a nope reference because it's they, they nope looked reference. up and they were all sucked up and that's where they died. They were digested inside Jeff Goldblum's alien. Exactly. They all died. It, it's it's a fictitious world, basically, right? It's all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all it's all fictitious world. Yeah. Um. But I do love that as soon as this alien lands, they just immediately go into quarantine. And I do love the jokes throughout this. Like one of the kids is being questioned because he wrote for his uh, school newspaper, and they're talking about how like you basically insulted one of your teachers, and he's like, "It's my right to do this." 
um one of the kids is being shown a bunch of like ink dots and stuff and they just keep talking about that it's an alien the dare kid is like i'm gonna press this red button and leave shriever's character goes i'll break your neck if you do that and then we cut to <laughs> augie and them that are discussing it and then the kid presses the button and leave shriever comes in to presumably beat the shit out of him because it was the 1950s but i do love that the quarantine is slowly kind of making them all question what their sensibility is in the world so much to the point where augie steenbeck both as the character and as jones hall in the real life production is starting to question himself like what is the meaning of it all and that starts to become the question that all the characters ask themselves in the movie like why did the alien come down why did it look at us like this do you think the alien is supposed to threaten us do you think that there's more life out there like these characters from this point on in the movie are asking one of the central themes which is what is our purpose what is our cosmic reasoning for being in the universe and i think the answer wes anderson gives at the end of the movie is kind of brilliant i know it'll piss a lot of people off because it's not direct but I do love the small answer that Wes Anderson does give by the ending, which we'll get to once we get towards the ending. But I do like how that moment in the movie is what drives the rest of the themes going forward, especially for Augie, because his character is not only going through the grief of losing the mother and having to accept that maybe he has to be the father figure and leader he's not sure he can be. But at the same time, he himself as the actor, not really understanding the character or what the point of the play is itself. Also, wait, did we also cover the fact that like, Augie's actor, like it, not Jason Forsman, but like the person playing him. Yeah, Jones Hall calling for the playwright, basically. Yeah. Like I, I don't know. Like I, like, I don't know what else to add to that. But like I, it's something that I was like thinking about because like I don't know. It was like a yeah. small little scene, and I thought that little scene was like really cool. Yeah, it's a cool scene. I think it's more supposed to introduce the fact that these two become uh, basically like almost close with each other like augie gets or jones hall gets very close into the augie character because of their growing relationship and also it does make sense like the train scene that they have with scarlett johansson and uh, jake ryan's character where he's talking about how like oh well i'm supposed to read this one to you if you're crying or i'm supposed to read this one to you if like you're all in distress and stuff i love that entire sequence because it also plays out in a way where it kind of talks about actors egos because sometimes egos get in the way a little bit of how an actor views themselves in the world and i do love the fact that the scene does play out pretty straight where scarlett johansson eventually does just agree like okay i'll do this role for the playwright and it just kind of reinforces the fact that like these characters throughout the movie are slowly trying to piece together like what edward or conward or played by edward norton is supposed to be trying to say about the world itself like i don't know like i remember my first viewing i was thinking like i was like watching the movie i was enjoying it but like there was like so much that was going on i didn't know how well paced it would be on rewatch but like I watch it again and it's probably one of the most rewatchable movies. It really is, of, yeah. Like, the way that Wes Anderson is able to tell the story, I think. Yeah, no, that, I'd agree with that. Like, I was like, maybe... Because, like, not to mention, too, like, it even, like, breaks up into, like, different sections of different acts. Like, Act 1 has, like, scene 1, 2, 3, and then Act 2 has scene 1, 2, and then it has an intermission. Wait, or... No, the intermission is between Act 1 and Act 2. Yeah, and it just says op- optional, optional. intermission. <laughs> what? Which I think, think's kind and, of brilliant. And, like, how long is this movie again? It's, like, 105 minutes. Yeah, it's it's not very long, which most Wes Anderson movies aren't. <laughs> so, I don't know. I just thought that was, like, a tiny little joke for me. Yeah. Because it's, like, I, I don't need enough intermission. 
I will admit, the first screening I had, there was some guy with a giant bucket of popcorn below me that as soon as the optional intermission came on, he's like, thank God I can leave this fucking movie. And he got up and left. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you're probably, yeah, I was like, you're probably going to watch The Flash later, sir. So I won't stop you. Okay. Well, at least he's watching a movie. I no, guess. no, 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 no. I, I've, <laughs> I've seen said movie, and he should have steered clear of it, dear God. <laughs> no, I, I saw your, I saw your letterbox. Oh yeah. That well, be... thank God, thank God, I'll never have to talk about that movie in a podcast form because it might give me a hernia. So. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we're gonna talk about something later. That, uh, but, but, but let's stay on Wes Anderson. <laughs> stay on Wes Anderson. <laughs> let's stay in the happy world um one thing that i do like in the movie is uh jake ryan's character has this slow little relationship that he's growing uh with another character in the movie um and one thing that i kind of like about um the relationship they have is the two of them themselves are trying to figure out what their cosmic purpose is in the universe both of them talk about how they would rather be outside the earth's atmosphere because they feel more comfortable out there you know like exploring the universe living amongst the aliens or on the different planets and stuff because all the kids in the movie that are brought to the junior stargazers convention don't fit in with their conventional lives they all work really well together they play brainiac games together they all devise a plan to contact the alien and get the picture that augie took out to the press all of them want to make sure that they get justice for what's happening in asteroid city and they don't want the government to completely take over and ruin this big day i do love how all these kids do eventually by the end of the movie like basically figure out almost what their purpose is in the universe and do discover that together like amongst peers that really do understand each other they can all find a way to find a cosmic reason for list uh, living in the universe also i just remembered one other thing like another side tangent thing uh so yeah rupert friends in this movie uh, mm-hmm. like montana he's like a well he's a british actor like in the play but uh in the play he's also playing like a southern rootin tootin singing guy yeah but like i can't stress how like i was like smiling from like ear to ear when i saw see george returning (laughs) do you know who see george is I've I've heard of Steve George. Uh, he did the uh he did the David Bowie covers. Oh, in, okay. Yeah, yeah, in Life Aquatic, I'm like, oh my god, he's back! And then obviously, like, he comes back too and to sing another song. Yeah. And uh, I know it's a, like a southern song that shows up later with like all the students. Yeah, they. Well, oh yeah, the thing because, about the alien. <laughs> yeah, because uh, my hawk she's in this movie she plays like a science teacher that gets a little bit rattled up because a fucking alien showed up to a convention they didn't plan uh and then like all these people start asking all the students start asking about the alien and then montana comes in he's like i don't think he's gonna harm us and then the next scene is like them crafting stuff and that's when see george comes in to help the kids sing their song and i don't know it, it was so cool to me yeah it is kind of a funny sequence um yeah but if we so i guess cutting back to the real life of the stage play itself and the production going on we learn a little bit about adrian brody's character how he basically took on the stage production himself and he ran it for six months but it also cost him a relationship with his marriage which 
I was kind of shocked to see Hong Chow had a small little cameo in this as the wife that shows up to serve basically divorce or not divorce papers, but to talk about how their marriage is crumbling. Yeah. Um, but one thing I like about Adrian Brody's character is his life has kind of just revolved around doing these plays and he's kind of missed out on some of the opportunities. Like Hong Chow talks about how they, he or about how he missed like his son's uh, big graduation ceremony about how he got all of these grades and was on the honor roll and stuff. And you just kind of show that it shows that um, Adrian Brody's character is so fixated on trying to tell these stories to the fact where he's not living in the moment of what him and his wife are trying to experience with him because Hong Chow even says that she doesn't hate him but she also doesn't love him in the same way anymore and once she exits the scene it's supposed to be really devastating because it is emblematic of like people in modern society that get so attached to doing one thing often do overlook things such as like their kid going on and doing something great or they don't have time to appreciate moments like that and so I do like how Wes Anderson ties that into almost realism in some way even though some guy in the audience blurted out this scene makes no fucking sense (laughs) media literacy folks media literacy these are the people that think they know movies i mean come on yeah green literally also gets to like box with like a fake like box like what's it what's it called like that little punching bag yeah, basically a punching bag. But yeah. I do like that he doesn't even hit the one next to him. He just keeps yeah, exactly. Imaginary like, one. An imaginary one. It's like he's such a weird dude. Like, but yeah. like that's what we kind of like about Wes Anderson films. Like, even though he's a great storyteller, he is telling the story of these quirky characters, I guess, and and that's why it works. I think. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah it works so well. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, um, I guess now we are getting a little bit towards the uh, climax. And so I guess before we get into that, I'll talk about. So when the kids do get the picture of the alien out, um, obviously Jeffrey Wright's character is very upset about it, how the president's all pissed off and stuff like that. Um, and then he's like, oh, but also there's a nude of Mitch Campbell that made it out. And everybody in the room is just so mesmerized by the fact that Mitch Campbell has a nude out, which I will say there is a small nude scene in the movie that I was not expecting to show up where Scarlett Jansen or Joe Hansen does take off her bathrobe. It's for a split second. I didn't know it was actually going to show up in the movie, but there were a couple people three seats down for me that decided to make a big ass scene out of it for some reason. I mean, and then there's like another, like that, like right after that. Right. Because yeah. we really, it's framed pretty good. Cause like, we only get to see like Scarlett Johansson's face, but we do get a shot of like a mirror shot. Yeah. But then I remember I caught that Augie was like, "Uh, you know that some people hired like stunt doubles for that, right? So who knows? (laughs) Yeah, who knows? Um, knows? Like it was, it was a small scene, but that was a little bit earlier too, right? Yeah, it was a little bit early on. But I do love how the whole camp is just mesmerized by Mitch Campbell having a nude that got out to the press. <laughs> I mean, that's typically the thing with Wes Anderson films that I started to notice. is like, yeah, it's not a Wes Anderson movie without cleavage. Yeah, without a cleavage, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but so as we get dragging towards the third act of this a little bit, so the quarantine's going to be lifted. All the kids are going to be able to go back to their normal lives. Um, until the alien shows back up and drops the asteroid off back where it was and it's been inventoried. And so Jeffrey right quickly rushes to the microphone. It's like, actually, the quarantine's about to go back on is courtesy of me. Leif Schrieber pulls out the little laser weapon and shoots Phew. it. And it all divulges into chaos, which I absolutely love. But one thing that's great is Jason Schwartzman is standing amidst the chaos and is like, I don't get it. 
And Scarlett Johansson says, what? I don't get it. The purpose. Like, I understand why he burns his uh, hand on the quickie griddle. I don't understand it. And he takes off his fake beard and he walks off on set onto the actual behind the scenes stage set. And he walks past Jeff Goldblum and it's like, I think the alien character is supposed to be emblematic of this and stuff. And I do love how straight it is that he's uh, like, have you seen the director? He's like, oh, what? No, I didn't know my scene was over. And so he walks in, he wakes up in a dream road. He's like, I don't get it. Why does he burn on the quickie griddle? What is the point of Augie's character? Why does he do all this? Blah, blah, blah. And Adrian Brody gives the answer that almost feels emblematic of Wes Anderson, where he's like, I don't understand it either. I'm just directing it. But you've become the character itself. And that's something that I really appreciate that most actors couldn't do. Wes Anderson in this moment basically has no answer to the cosmic reasoning for why we all serve. And we are kind of just all living through life in general, which I do love. It's like there is no direct answer to life. There is no reasoning for why we get up every day. It's just the fact that we get up, we do it, we live. And it gives us the experience to push forward every day, which is something that I think is going to piss people off because one, it's not a straightforward answer. But two, a lot of people are going to be like, that's it. That's the point of the entire movie. But it works so well because Wes Anderson has never tackled life itself in some capacity and doing it through Augustine Beck, I think was really well done. And it leads into one of your favorite scenes that I know you have some of the lines memorized to with Margot Robbie's character out on the balcony, which it's a great scene. <sighs> yeah. Also, like, before that, though, I it did remind me that, like, with the Augie scene with Erp, like, when he yeah. introduces himself, that, on top of, like, the them kissing, I remember, like, because you, that's fascinating that you memorized that, though, the, like, the fact that, like, he doesn't get it, like, yeah. why he, like, burned his hand on the griddle, because beforehand, I think he did at some point, right? Like, the screenwriter, Erp, said that, oh, uh, I personally don't know why he did that. But then Augie's actor was like, oh, I think it's because he was trying to find some purpose at first. Yeah. Right? Then, obviously, the play goes on, and now he doesn't know. I don't know. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, it, it, that's one of the things where I was like, that's pretty damn good on Wes Anderson's part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then... Yeah, and then we got to see Augie's actor go onto the onto the balcony. And it's framed just like how Augie's character was with um the person across from him, which was Scarlett Johansson's character. Because yeah, she was the mom the entire time. And I think, like, subtly, she's, like, one of my favorite characters because, like, on top of the little lines that we get, we also get a little bit of tidbits where, like, Woodrow even points out that's, like, oh, yeah, my mom would name, would make up constellation names and such. So, like, she was already, like, an eccentric character, right? Yeah. But what Margot Robbie was going to be discussing was her final lines in the play that was cut due to time. Yeah. Basically. I don't remember all of them, but I got to this part. She says, I say, I think he's shy. I, they're talking about the extraterrestrial. Yeah. Basically, in the dream sequence, sort of, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. But yeah. And then she's, she's like, You say, so is Woodrow, but I'm sure he'll grow out of it. I mean, I hope he will without a mother. I say, He's a late bloomer, but maybe I think he'll need to replace me. You say, what? Why? How? I can't. I say, 
Baby, I think you'll need to try. I'm not coming back, Augie. Then you take a picture of me and start crying, but I say, I hope it comes out. And then Woodrow says, then I say, all of my pictures come out. That scene straight up fucking rocks. I don't care if people don't get the message of the movie. That scene's beautiful, I think. It is. And it, I I was nervous because when people are like, Margot Robbie has a cameo on here, I'm like, oh, is it just going to be like a haha funny cameo? But no, Wes Anderson found a way to take one of the smallest scenes in the movie and give it one of the biggest impacts. And I, it really is just a testament to him as a filmmaker and just doing these little thematic moments because it's all in black and white. She's dressed up for, it was some sort of like, I think royal play or something like that that she was doing. And I just love the monologue that they give to each other. I do love how the sequence plays out. I do love how ultimately by the end, Augie does start to, or not Augie, I guess, but Jones Hall that plays Augie does start to understand it a little bit better. And so it's just a really well put together scene. But, you know, I was just thinking about this Fahrenheit. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You cannot you wake, wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Okay. So, I know that this scene confused the hell out of people because I had one old man go, What the fuck was that? in my audience, right? Um, which I will say, I do understand it. When <laughs> when something gets repeated over and over in a movie and you don't understand it's supposed to be emblematic of a theme for something, um, you're probably going to be very confused and you're not going to be able to, you know, basically piece it together. But somebody that likes film, and obviously Fahrenheit who also likes film, we look at a scene like that and we go, oh damn, okay, I kind of get what it's talking about. So through my interpretation of this sequence of the you can't wake up, you don't fall asleep monologue, it's kind of emblematic of Augie's character because if you think about it, he's basically been suppressing his grief the entire movie. He doesn't understand how to work through his grief. And much like you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, you can't process your grief if you don't try to find a way to talk about it or at least work through it. And it kind of works in that Margot Robbie sequence. And it also is emblematic for the movie itself that the characters have to work through their different paths of life and stuff or otherwise they're not going to be able to fall asleep itself. I basically agree with that, to be honest. I can't really add much. Because, like, I don't know, like, especially, like, the way that's framed, too, like, of Jeff Goldblum's carrying the asteroid again. Yeah. Looking onto the screen. It's like, yeah. Like, I want to say that it's like, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Kind of means, yeah, you can't really... Like, go through life without, like, not knowing where you're gonna go. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, like, I'm still setting my thoughts. Like, I know I was ready to do this podcast, and, but, like, I'm still sitting on the story because it's just so good. Yeah, it's anything talking about a little bit more makes me love it a lot more. I think, if anything, it's, like, stuck in place where it is at like in my top four mm-hmm. like uh, i don't know like I, I just love this movie a lot yeah 
Um, oh yeah, and so then there's a little epilogue that comes at the end of the movie, and basically everybody has left Asteroid City, the quarantine's been lifted, Steve Carell's like, oh yeah, you overslept Mr. Steenbeck, would you like a complimentary drink before you go? Then they all go to the diner, and they're gonna take the mother's ashes with them at first, but the girls protest once again, and so finally Tom Hanks gives in and is like, okay, we'll bury her here, we'll leave her remains here, even though it's technically not a plot. He asks Woodrow if he'd like to say a prayer because he's Episcopalian, and he goes, oh, actually, I don't believe in god which i think is kind of funny by the ending that he just becomes an atheist um but um they all pack up into the car they go into the diner one last time the p.o box of midge campbell is given to augie schwartzman um and at the same time woodrow is able to uh date his now girlfriend in the movie uh uh, dina campbell and i do love that by the ending everybody kind of gets a somewhat happy ending they drive off and the great needle drop of freight train plays and that's the end of the movie with the little roadrunner just doing its dance during the credits and then there's a post-credit scene of uh oh no there's no post-credit scene here willem dafoe walks into frame and he's like we're about to make the aquatic life of steve zizu 2 and yeah! he puts on his little red hat and the audience cheered and everybody yeah left. no so, me included yeah, uh <laughs> 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 But yeah, but besides that, um, once again, Wes Anderson has made another great movie. Uh, like me and Fahrenheit talked about through this, the themes of this are great. The movie itself is great. I don't have a lot of complaints with it really much besides it's good. And I think this is another great Wes Anderson classic. I understand he's not for everyone because, like I said, there were people in the theater that were just mad they didn't understand the movie. Um, I think I gave it an 8 out of 10 on Letterboxd. That's probably the rating I'm going to leave it at for right now because who knows, over time it could grow because, like I said, the Royal Tenenbaums and my fantastic Mr. Mr. Fox got better for me as time went on. So maybe this one will grow up there and it'll grow to a 9 out of 10. You never know. I agree, my boy. Stop. Stop. (laughs) I'm going to ban you. This is it. No. No. I can't take it. (laughs) Anyways, I... The thing is, for me, like, I don't know if it's recency bias. I know that I, like, with French Dispatch, when I first watched it, like, I, like, fell in love with it. I gave that one, like, a a nine, I think. And I think it's down to, like, an eight. Okay. For me. But still great. But, like, with Asteroid City, like, the fact that I'm still thinking about it more than the French Dispatch just says so much for me, I think. Yeah. I, I'm i fine with giving this, like, a 9.5 to a 10. That's, I, yeah, that's completely fair. Because, like, this is, this is, like, for better and for worse, th- this is, like, the best Wes Anderson movie since The Grand Budapest Hotel. Just do, th- like, I remember, that, that that's, like, the one thing that was, like, technically spoiled of was the fact that this is something akin to The Grand Budapest Hotel. Where it's like, where there's like layers to the story, yeah. Right? And I think that's like beautiful. In fact, mm-hmm. in some ways, I do prefer the structure of Asteroid City a little bit more than Grand Budapest in some aspects. But then I just think that Grand Budapest is better. But yeah, no, this is like a solid film that will always be in my dreams from. A dream that I can't wake up from. <laughs> you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, which I should mention is said by Willem Dafoe in the movie. He is in it, but his character is pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, he can't really hold a candle to Klaus. True. 
from uh, the Life Aquatic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, that's Asteroid City. One of the best movies this year, in my opinion. Yeah. Now should we uh, transition to whatever the fuck I watched and uh, experienced? Um. So funny story about that, actually. Uh huh. I went to Vancouver like a week ago. Mhm. And I was jokingly being, I was jokingly like, "Hey, uh, maybe we should see that Indiana Jones movie, like in Vancouver, just for mm-hmm. funsies." And then we never did. So I was just patiently waiting to see Indiana Jones while everybody else was like, if they're loving it or hating it. So I decided to sit down at the theater afterwards and it's a Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's a generous way of talking about it. Um, So, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I guess, let let me me backtrack here a little bit. So, um, I grew up with Indiana Jones. This was one of the few series that my grandpa and dad both showed me when I was little um, because they were big fans of Harrison Ford. My dad loves pretty much all of his movies. Um, so I grew up with Indiana Jones in those first three movies. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a great Jewish revenge film. It's one of Steel- Steven Spielberg's like most ambitious movies. I understand why a lot of people consider it one of the best movies of all time. Personally, for me, it's not, but I still do think it's a really solid action-adventure movie. Temple of Doom. Uh, has not aged well. Uh, it is pretty racist in some parts, and a lot of it is just overly violent for no reason. I know it was made because George Lucas was going through a divorce at the time, and he was all pissed off, and Spielberg was just really interested in Cape Capshaw uh, the entire time, and so that movie is kind of a mess. I do like it still overall, mostly, even if it does have some parts, and plus, it's got Kihi Kwan in it, and he's a, li- he's a little kid in it, and so it's kind of fun just getting to watch him play short round. Um, But The Last Crusade for me was the one that really stuck with me. One, because it's got the father-son element that is emblematic of the real-life relationship between Steven Spielberg and his dad, but it also had Sean Connery basically in the movie for yucks, and he does really well as the father of Indiana Jones, and I love everything about the themes in the movie. There is one scene in that movie where after Indy goes off the cliff with the Nazi on the tank, he thinks that his son has died, and he's like, I wish I had five minutes with him just to tell him everything. And then once he discovers Indy's alive, he hugs him, and he goes, I lost your boy. I thought I lost your boy. And he goes, I thought I, I thought you did too, sir. And it made me tear up. It was one of the few moments in a Spielberg movie where I was like, God damn it, that's so well done. But also, that was supposed to signal the end of the franchise because Indy, his father, and all his friends literally rode off into the sunset, much like how most of the adventure serials of the era ended, with the character riding off into the sunset one last time. But then they made Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I saw in theaters with my dad when I was eight. We both walked out hating it, and we said to ourselves, well, they can't possibly make another Indiana Jones, right? Here we are in 2023 with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, not directed by Spielberg or produced by Lucas, but instead filmed by James Mangold that made one of my favorite comic book movies of all time and some really solid movies, too, that I'm sitting here just thinking about right now. What the hell happened? Because I don't know if I want to blame him for whatever went wrong with this movie, if it was Disney's problem, or just in general, should this movie have been made at all? Because um, today, as we talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, you're going to discover, yeah, I didn't like this at all. I I didn't like it much. I I will say this. I don't hate it as much as everybody else is right now. I know there's some people on the internet that think this is one of the worst movies ever made, but I don't think it's that bad. I do think it's not great. 
I don't think it's a good movie. I don't even think it's okay. But I don't think it's as bad as everybody is talking about. But uh, Fahrenheit, if you'd like to chime in about Indiana Jones as a character and uh, your thoughts on the franchise and uh, how the hell we got here in the first place. The Lego games are better. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, l- let me preface because I get why people love Indiana Jones movies. Like, hell, I didn't even know, like, half of what Bacon just said. Like, and it makes a lot more sense. But, like, for me, I never really grew up with them. I literally grew up playing Indiana Jones on, like, Lego Indiana Jones games on my fucking DSi as a kid. That's, like, my main exposure to these movies, unfortunately. But, like... Those games are Kino. They are, right? And, like, I don't know. Like, well, although I did watch them, and then I just thought that they were, like, okay to... Or not just okay, they're pretty good. Like, I mm-hmm. think that Last Crusade is probably my favorite one. Yeah, sure. mine too. Um, But, like, yeah, I did not like Temple Doom. I literally was trying to watch Crystal Skull on my way to Vancouver, and I had to turn it off. Part time. <laughs> and then, I don't know, Indiana Jones, Style of Destiny. Like, maybe I haven't given Crystal Skull its fair share. I just felt that was not great. I think that Indiana Jones is kind of okay at best, but at its worst, it does feel artificial and fake, I guess, yeah. compared yeah. to the other ones. But like, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that's my thoughts. So I'll give a, a quick little plot synopsis of Dial of Destiny. Um, finding himself in a new era, approaching retirement, Indy wrestles with fitting into a world that seems to have outgrown him. But as the tentacles of an all-too-familiar evil return in the form of an old rival, Indy must don his hat and pick up his whip once more to make sure an ancient and powerful artifact doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Um, so yeah, Indiana Jones of the Dial of Destiny. Um, I guess we'll start at the beginning of the movie. So the beginning of the movie almost impressed me with the opening because it starts off in 1944 because if you think about it, the Indiana Jones films never talked about or showed Indiana Jones during World War II. They either took place before uh, the Nazi war took on with America and the rest of the countries and Crystal Skull obviously took uh, or took place during the Cold War. So we never got to see Indy in that World War II era and the movie opens with him. Um, it's in 1944 when the Nazis were losing the war and they're looking for any ancient artifact to help Hitler win. And so the beginning of the movie is he's captured by the Nazis. He's brought inside to a castle. He has a bag over his head and they take it off and at first i was like okay it doesn't look too bad and then the scene played out and it was 80 year old harrison ford's voice coming out of the cgi body and i went oh my god no like on top of that like it 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 was growing on me until it didn't until like it started looking like a ps3 cutscene yeah and on top of that i'm just thinking have we really gotten to this point where, like, are, are we always just going to complain about, like, if an actor doesn't look exactly like a, another actor when they were younger? Like, do we really need to relegate ourselves to 
like a CGI monster or like a Z or like a zombie like that's resurrected from the I don't know like why don't we just hire like people that look like Harrison Ford when he was younger or something like I, I don't think we're gonna complain about that in fact like Last Crusade had one of the best openings because they didn't like I'm pretty sure like it would be worse if Indiana Jones played a younger version of himself in a Boy Scout suit. Yeah. Like, why can't they just hire somebody that looks like him? I know. That's... It, it, it just fucking annoyed me, the entire yeah. prologue. That was decent. It was actually decent if you've removed, like, Harrison Ford's CGI face. Yeah. Oh. Uh, because I've stressed this before, um, Dr. Sleep came out in 2019, and it was the sequel to The Shining, one of the biggest horror movies of all time, if not one of the biggest movies in history. And one thing I got to commend that movie for was it recasted everyone. It didn't do CGI Shelley Duvall or Jack Nichols, Nicholas, or Nicholas in any way or anything like that. It simply recasted actors that looked like them. And I appreciated that. And I was like, okay, if more movies went down this road, I would actually commend them for that. But then you had Disney that had revived um, CGI Grandma Tarkin from the dead and also Carrie Fisher. And I went, oh, God, Disney's not going to learn their lesson. And then there were reported rumors about how there's going to be CGI young Harrison Ford in this. And the whole time I'm just thinking we've lost the magic of Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones whole appeal was it was all practical. The stunts were practical. The explosions were practical. All the set pieces were practical. Heck, the opening of Last Crusade with young Indy on the train was all practical. He was running across the train. He fell in the snake pit covered in snakes and stuff. He outran these guys on horses and stuff. But now we're relegated to a PS3 cutscene that's all CG of a bomb being dropped into a castle, Indy falling down said castle in very uncanny valley looks, getting on a Nazi train and running across it looking like a PS3 cutscene wonky character. And the entire train sequence goes on at least 20 minutes too long. Like this thing should have been cut down to at least like maybe an eight minute action sequence because everything in the action wise in this movie is too damn long. It all needed to be cut down at least 10 minutes to 20 minutes more than what it was. I mean, I think all the explosions that are practical it's being saved for Oppenheimer. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we got to get Oppenheimer. Oh, I'm not excited for that. Personally. But <laughs> that's no, another okay. movie. <laughs> that's another movie. But yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That was disappointing, I think. But like, I like... What, what I do like about this action prologue is that it introduced Shaw, I guess. Like, in how he's going to be integral to the plot of the story. Yeah, Toby Jones. Mm-hmm. And yeah, also I introduces Matt Nicholson. Yeah, Matt Nicholson. Really good, yeah. I think. Kind of. Yeah, he's he's good with the little they give him to do, but I do appreciate him in this movie. Um, So when Indy's on the train, though, we do discover that the Nazis are looking for the Lance of Lysel, which was the Lance that stabbed Christ after he was crucified on the cross. Um, and they believe that it has some sort of magical, mystical powers that will help out Hitler, only for Indy to discover, oh, no, it's actually a fake. And then the Nazis discover it's a fake because Mads Mikkelsen walks in and is like, oh, it's a fake, guys. But 
there's this old dial and the Nazis are like, stop talking about this fucking dial, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it leads to Indiana Jones having to take the Nazis out on the train. There's a really bad Uncanny Valley fight sequence on top of it. And after all the Nazis are taken out, they're like, oh, well, we've got to stop the train because of this dial, blah, blah, blah. And the Allies, of course, bomb the train track because it's a Nazi train. They don't know Indy and Toby Jones are on it. And so they're forced to jump into the water from this extremely high height, which I get it. Indiana Jones films aren't exactly realistic with stuff, but I was just kind of laughing as it happened. Um, because when you saw CGI Harrison Ford in the water, it just pointed out the CG even worse. Um, but after that, they walk on the shore and Toby Jones is like, I can't believe we lost the artifact. And Harrison Ford's like, what do you mean, Baz? And he pulls it out and shows it to him. And then they just walk off. And then we hard cut to the opening of old Indiana Jones, which... I do want to say, when we talk about Mads Mikkelsen's character later, I do have a little bit of an issue with him. It's kind of a minor thing, but I'll get to it in a little bit. But here's the thing about the opening of old Indiana Jones. And my biggest issue with Indiana Jones as a character, basically post the third movie. So Indiana Jones is basically a generic action man. He's an adventure serial character. The appeal of an adventure serial character is they're young, heroic. They go on all these daring, dashing adventures. They never get old. What happens to Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in this movie? He gets old. So the appeal is basically lost at this point. We don't have a cool action character to follow anymore. He's not relatable. We don't envy to be him at this point in his career because basically the whole opening is just depressing as fuck. Indy walks around his very decrepit apartment. He makes himself shitty coffee. He stares at divorce papers that were served to him by his wife. Mutt died in the war off screen, which I didn't mind as much because I didn't care for Shia LaBeouf in the last movie. But all the mysticism and appeal of Harrison Ford is basically gone as Indiana Jones because he's just been reduced to this old man at this point. You know what? I was going to say, like, this movie should have taken notes from Up. Yeah. Right? Like, where, like, it's an action... Well, not an action. It's an adventure film with, like, an old man, like, trying to find his, like, dream home and such. But, like, it's, like, very compelling. There's, like, literally Blade Runner 2049. Yeah. Yeah. Where, like, Harrison Ford... Or... I wasn't going to mention Star Wars. No. Uh, but, like, <laughs> yeah, no, 2049. Like, it has old Harrison Ford, man. And, like, he's compelling and such. Like, and he actually has stuff to do. And I think he has action scenes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, he has at least one in that movie, I remember. Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like there should be a way to work Indiana Jones. In my opinion, I think there should be a way to work like an action Indiana Jones, especially since there's another character that's like younger. Um, if anything, this could have been like Last Crusade to some degree, just like it's reversed with like this one character who's like young and very like brashful, and then like you have like the Godfather, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I there there should be a way to work it. It's just not there, in my opinion. And not in a way that feels authentic. Yeah, no, I get that. So, um, after the depressing opening, Indiana Jones goes downstairs to beat up some hippies with a baseball bat, um, only for them to be like, hey, man, we just put uh, some astronauts on the moon. We're going to end the war with Vietnam and stuff. And so... Indy trunges along to being, of course, the archaeologist professor that he is. He goes to his lecture, which now he has some more high-tech equipment. He can do, like, little slideshow presentations and stuff. But 
Um, his whole class doesn't give a shit about history. It's not, I guess this is another thing that I get what the movie's trying to do is like he's in an era that is different now. Like these kids do not give a shit about anything Indiana Jones is saying about history besides Helena Shaw. And I get it's trying to set the fact that Indiana Jones is a relic, he's out of time, everything like that, which is very emblematic of what the movie's trying to say by the ending, which we'll get to that as time goes on. But it just, it leaves you with this kind of depressing feeling a little bit because you're like, what are we supposed to kind of root for here? Because at this point, we're just kind of rooting for Indiana Jones to die so that way he doesn't have to exist in a world like this. Um, but then Phoebe Waller-Bridge obviously shows up and she's like, I'm your goddaughter. And they talk about how they're looking for the missing piece, obviously, that would lead to the Dial of Destiny or the Dial of Archimedes, um, which I will say, I do like the fact that compared to Crystal Skull, they do try to find a way to tie in like a real world um, artifact into Indiana Jones again. Now, I think the one thing it's missing is kind of the religious aspect and mysticism of it, because every artifact that Indiana Jones found in the original trilogy had some sort of mystical, like religious reasoning behind it or some sort of mystical power that was emblematic of the real world and the lore behind it. With this one, what they try to do, though, is they basically try to say that Archimedes was able to discover fissures with the Dial of Destiny using math. And they try to make it seem like math equates to religion. And I'm kind of like, um, no, that's not the same thing, James Mangle. <laughs> I mean, I get that. I, I don't know. Like, especially, like, the twist that happens later down the line. Yeah, yeah. I, think I personally liked it for the most part until, like, something happens. But, like, yeah, I, I get that. Why, like... Yeah. It doesn't really feel tangible. But, like, at the same time, for me, I don't think there has ever been, like, an Indiana Jones movie that hasn't jumped the shark at some point. Yeah. I, I get what you mean with the whole religion thing. Yeah, because to me, like, Spielberg with the first movie, you can tell that meant a lot to him to do a Jewish revenge story of the Ark of the Covenant, because obviously the Jewish uh, ancestors uh, of Moses were obviously supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant and they were supposed to protect it. And then it went missing and the Nazis found it. And obviously what the Nazis were doing to the Jewish people at the time, you know, it makes sense why they'd want to get a little bit revenge and just melt their fucking faces and kill them, which you completely understand what Spielberg was trying to do at the end of that movie, even somewhat to an extent with Last Crusade. Like there is a little bit of a tie there. Like his dad personally, you know, sought, uh, sought out the grail. And so Indiana Jones feels like he has to do this mission himself also with him because it's a personal mission for the both of them and i get temple of doom they're trying to do kind of like an indian culture thing that it's supposed to be tied loosely to some religion in indian culture but you know crystal skull was like let's just do fucking aliens because george lucas is off his rocker and then this one james mangled's like yeah math and religion yeah that kind of goes together even though i still do appreciate the fact that they do try to tie the artifact of this movie to something realistic also just a change the subject for like a second uh phoebe waller bridge uh she's from fleabag one of my favorite actresses ever in one of my favorite shows honestly and i if anything i know it's a bit shallow it's one of the reasons why i had like some hope for this for this movie that's like i don't know like and the thing is she does in pretty good job for what she's given even though like there are some moments where i feel the writing wasn't as great but like i don't know yeah i i was i was kind of rooting for her a little bit but there there are some cute stuff with her that's yeah. like pretty cool like subtly 
Yeah. Such. Of course, the internet was on a hate train for her, and I was kind of like, she's not even that bad in the movie. Like, it's just her writing. Her writing's not great in some scenes, which I'll agree with you on that, but she's never, like, annoying in the movie or anything like that. Like, you do understand that her character... To me, her character is supposed to be somewhat kind of like Marion a little bit. Like, she's very independent, wants to do her own thing and stuff like that. She doesn't obviously fall in love with Indiana Jones because Harrison Ford's fucking 80 in this movie. Um, but I do appreciate that what they were setting up with her character because I kind of like the dynamic between her and Indiana Jones because when Indiana takes her back to uh, his personal like office and everything where all these relics are and stuff, he catches on that she's been lying to him about stuff and she's taking the map and when she's cornered, of course, the Nazis come in and stop her and everything like that. But I do love that it comes to this big reveal that she's looking for the artifact not to like find it for her father, but she just wants to sell it because she doesn't see preserving artifacts as like something for the betterment of society, kind of like Indiana Jones. She sees it for a more of a monetary gain, kind of like um, almost the smuggler at the beginning of Indiana Jones' The Last Crusade that just wanted it to sell, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I do kind of appreciate they set that up as a like dynamic with Indiana Jones because Indiana Jones we've always known is like it belongs in a museum and she's like fuck the museum let's just make a profit off this so I do like everything that they set up with their character being kind of like a foil to Indiana Jones. Yeah, I mean I get the foil part if anything, but like for me I kind of wish their dynamic played. That that's the character that I was referring to by the way earlier. Like yeah, I do wish that. Helena Shaw played a little bit more like a younger indie. Like, like to some degree, like, you can probably keep her with the whole, she wants to sell the the treasure, basically, right? Yeah. But, like, for me, I never really got, like, any, any like, chemistry between Indiana Jones and Helena Shaw, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's the biggest issue, is mate, I, like, they seem to have fun working with each other on set but you just don't really feel that same chemistry in the movie i think it might be possibly due to reshoots that were done in the movie a little bit later because uh yeah spoilers this movie costs 300 million dollars to make i i have no fucking idea why disney would put that much money into indiana jones yeah so yeah i don't know like it that's the part that didn't feel tangible to me yeah um but as the sequence plays out with them in the library and everything the nazis do come in and one thing i do like is it is dark so like when the nazis come in and they're working with uh oh what's the character's name uh mason that's played by shanti renee wilson um the nazis just kill the two professors that show up and i do like how dark it is that it isn't like oh they're shot and they'll be okay no they're fucking dead so they are kind of keeping that dark tone that the indiana jones films have and when they break inside obviously they want to catch dr jones and helena shaw but helena escapes onto the rooftop and here's where i kind of can't buy harrison ford doing stunts i'm sorry so when he's cornered by the nazis like he kicks over a shelf full of artifacts right in the back of my mind i'm going okay i want to buy this but one indiana jones would never destroy priceless artifacts because that's just not in his character and two 80 year old harrison ford would probably break his back kicking over heavy shelves like that um and obviously the nazis catch him as the scene plays on after he tries to call the cops and stuff and he's taken out into the streets where he starts saying hell no we won't go but like they're already chanting so it doesn't make any fucking sense because like nobody's drawn to create a distraction for him he's just kind of mindlessly saying shit and then he grabs a sign and he hits one of the nazis and then he breaks away from him and gets on a horse and rides away and it just it does not feel realistic because no 80 year old man is doing this right and at the same time if you think about it 
there's no realistic way that's Harrison Ford actually doing the stunts because you can see where the CGI outline of his old face was put on the stunt double. But bacon, bacon, bacon. What? You have to understand, this is Indiana Jones. Oh, you're right. <laughs> he's he's a motherfucker who can like t- poisoned and is able to do like insane like punches and is able to choreograph like a whole like like circle to cover bullets and such. I, I don't know. I can't find <laughs> him. Like. It, that that's the like that's one thing about the Indiana Jones movies that has been super absurd for me, and yeah, I know I I'm the same person that likes to see like two guys drive a car into space, but like <laughs> I don't know, like they, basically I I can't defend it, but at the same time I don't mind the horse scene. Okay. I guess. But, like, yeah, if anything, the one thing that I will complain about is, like, yeah, he's very adamant on preserving stuff, and it's like, it belongs to a museum, which I don't agree with. But at the same time, it's like, he's also destroying artifacts. And then on top of that, it's like, he's also framed for murder, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, like, just think about the plot is like hurting my brain anyways yeah Yeah, the plot's not great um but yeah like uh, i don't know like the horse scene gave me life at least like seeing him fucking outrun a train two trains for that matter on a horse (laughs) i don't know like it it gave me life that that's that that's my biggest compliment for it I guess. Yeah. No, that's completely fair. I get what you're talking about. Um, yeah, but after the the train sequence, it ends kind of cute because he gives away the horse and he gets on the subway train with the kid that just kind of looks at him. It's nice, obviously. Um, then we hard cut back to the Nazis that are basically like Dr. Jones and Helena Shaw got away and they're all pissed off that this has happened. And so they have to seek out and go find it. And um, here's the thing, uh, thing about Shanti Renee Wilson's character. I wanted to like this Agent Mason a lot. I really did. But then this character, spoiler alert, just gets killed off, like, in the almost towards the end of the first act of the movie, basically. And it's kind of like, what was the character for? It's kind of like a Mac situation in Chris- Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where Mac as a character is completely fucking pointless. He just double-crosses Indy several times in the movie, and then he just foolishly gets sucked up into the vortex of a fucking ufo and dies and i'm like what was this character for and that's kind of what i thought with her character i'm like what the hell is her character's purpose in this like she could have been cut out and it really changes nothing because she doesn't really impact the story she doesn't really affect anything that happens on so again it's another scenario where i'm like what was her character supposed to do in the movie i don't know (laughs) exactly (laughs) Oh, this was I don't know. I what well, this movie just baffles me. Like, yeah. th- this is the first time where like I've like this movie has like literally been breaking my brain. Yeah. Like like and the thing is I was coming on here thinking that I was gonna defend it a little bit more. I yeah, that's what I thought. I thought it was gonna be good cop, bad cop, like Thor Love and Thunder. Oh the, the, this podcast is turn for the for the worst oh god how did we go we, from although we did, to this? 
<laughs> At least we got to talk about Astrid City. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but oh yeah, yeah let me back talk about to the, back to the schlock. Yeah, let, uh, let me talk about the Sala scene because that was one of the few things I was like, okay, that's really sweet. So uh india's on the run because he's one for murder and this guy recognizes him outside a tv station is like hey hey you're you're dr joe and then sala comes in and knocks him out and he takes indy back to his apartment where we discover that sala has like a small little family that he's living with and everything which i'm just thinking what happens to the rest of his kids because if you remember in uh raiders of the lost ark he had a shit ton of kids when he goes to that little apartment he's got two fucking kids total in there um, we don't know what obviously happened between that time, but I do like how he talks about how Indiana basically brought him over from his country to America to try and help him start a better life. Um, and Saul obviously talks to him about how like, oh, well, there's this auction house in Morocco that you should go to because you'll be able to find Helena there and everything. And when he goes to the airport with Indy, he's like, and I brought my passport to it because I miss the desert. I miss waking up and missing the adventures that we used to go on every day. And Indy's like, it ain't an adventure, pal. It's just, you know, something that I got to do. Those days have come and gone. And of course, Saul is like, perhaps not. You know, you're the legend of Indiana Jones. I'll never like doubt you and everything. He yells, give him hell, Indiana Jones. And then Indy goes and gets on a plane. And uh, it's a little nitpick. I know it's gonna bother some people, and it's probably only me. Um, they don't do the little the little plane map sequence like they do in all the movies. I miss that. Like instead, they they show like a little background backstory of like how Toby Jones was going insane while Indy was visiting Helena and stuff. And basically, he promised Tommy Jones like, "I promise that I'll I'll destroy it. I'll destroy the Dial of Destiny." Even though he never did, basically, right? I understand they were trying to do that, but. Organically, you could have done that somewhere else in the movie. I don't know why you just cut out the little map sequence that they do in all the movies, because like it would it would have worked better there, because he gets on a plane and he's traveling to Morocco. They do the plane sequence once. Yeah, later on in the movie. They do it once. Yeah. Shit film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I I don't know. So the Morocco sequence. I kind of liked it first. I like it was kind of cute. Like they, as Indy's walking through the auction, and everything he runs is this character named Teddy that picks his pocket, and then he goes into the auction room and he's basically telling Helena like this thing isn't for sale, and all of like the mobsters that are there is like who the hell is this old guy? And he's like I'm her uh, god, her godfather, and everything like that. And I do like how dismissive she is towards Indiana Jones because she's like you're basically ruining my buy and everything like that. You belong in a museum. You're too old to be working in this line of work and stuff like that. I do love, like I said, the little back and forth they have. It's just the chemistry, like you were talking about, is just not really there. She does get to shit on capitalism, though. Yeah, which yeah, that was what Mac did in the last movie, too. He's like, sorry, Jonesy, I'm a capitalist. Yeah. There, I don't know. There, there's better ways to, to shit on capitalism than... Well, to be fair, it was kind of... I actually like that line a little bit. Uh, it did kind of remind me of a uh, shoot. Yeah, no, it, it kind of reminded me of a uh, across the Spider Verse with like Hobie's thing. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but like I don't know, like, and then I really like the shot where like they all have like at some points like everybody's like pointing guns at Indiana Jones because like doesn't he take the dialogue? Yeah, so so he takes the dial, and then his brilliant way of getting out is just whipping the room and going, get back, and then they all point guns and fucking shoot at him. No, but then he dodges, like, the Matrix. Yeah, you know, 80-year-old Harrison Ford can do that, I guess. 
Yeah, no, he's... That's why he's so strong. He's actually the chosen one. Maybe we have to go with Isaac's headcanon that the Holy Grail just healed him and made him immortal. (laughs) (laughs) What? I agree with that. You know what, Isaac? Me and Fahrenheit are so broken by this movie, we're taking your headcanon. Exactly. Uh, Isaac, uh, what do you think about that? And then it just cuts them being like, Help! Help me! As Danny's tied him up and put him in the fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Um, Anyways, but... So, post-Morocco sequence, uh, Helena Shaw and Indy fight their way out. They go out onto the street where these cops show up, and they're going to arrest the both of them. But then, the cops put down the guns, which, at first, you're kind of like, why the fuck are they putting down their guns? And these gangsters roll up, and you're like, oh, okay, I, I guess that's why it happened. Uh, and then it turns out the lead gangster is like, Helena, you and I were supposed to get married and stuff. And Helena was like, oh, sorry, I broke it off, which... Like I said, it's trying to draw that Indiana Jones comparison there where, like, she's kind of like Indy where she's going around with all these guys, like, forming relationships and then breaking them off later and stuff. Um, And it leads to a chase sequence that it was kind of like at first, like, all right, this is decent. And then it goes on 20 minutes too long. And I'm like, all right, this kind of sucks because it's all basically green screen for the most part. The only action they can have Harrison Ford do is drive a car and jump from one car to another. And there's no, like, cool kills. Nothing in the sequence really stands out. It's just very bland and flat. And I don't take away anything impressive from it whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I know Bacon usually carries me in a lot of these podcasts. And I do sometimes have some good points. But, like, at some point, there's, like not really much i can say anything (laughs) (laughs) i can't really add anything because like it's there's nothing there like like, i don't know there there are some parts where like especially with that car's chasing where like i wish there was it was shorter you're right i just not only that but like there are ways to make things like quirky and campy but we don't really get that here no it's just so bland it's so bland oh my god um but by the end of this sequence uh i i think the nazis get the dial is that right i'm trying to piece it together i think i think oh wait, wait, wait. yeah uh fucking uh shaw's no i'm pretty sure it's matt nicholson okay like like yeah because it was because shaw's partner drops it and then Mads Nicholson picks up and he's like, thank you, and then goes down an escalator and it's like, hey, hey, hey. he doesn't actually do that. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He doesn't funny. actually do that. It would, it would be kind of funny, though. It would be funny if serious actor Mads Nicholson just like... <laughs> just got on an elevator and went, haha, Dr. Jones, I have the dial of destiny. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> just... You know, that might make more sense for the movie, though, if you think about it. Like, Indiana Jones being 80, he just fights on an escalator because it's doing most of the work for him. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. By the way, speaking about Matt Nicholson, like, I'm kind of interested in, in him as an actor. And I know that he's, like, a very serious one. There's this one movie that I need to see him in. Uh, where like he's like drinking in the poster. Oh, Do you know? uh, another round. That's a great movie. Another round. Yeah, I need to see that one. But like here, I feel like the more I think about it, this is like the most like generic 
Matt Nicholson role that you can give him. Yeah. Besides, like, uh, he was the besides he was the villain in uh, the Doctor first Doctor Strange. Strange. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like in that one, at least he had like a very funny like physical performance where like he's like getting trapped. Yeah. In a fucking machine. If you think about it, he's been in three of Disney's biggest franchises. The MCU, Star Wars, and now Indiana Jones. Rogue One is good, I think, for, like, the third act, at the very least. Yeah, but, yeah. it sold a lot of toys, I know that. Most definitely for Rogue One. Yeah, um, yeah. anyway, but, so after this, uh, Indy and Helena are kind of like... Oh, well, um, I know where we are able to find, like, the second half of the Dial of Destiny. We're able to decipher this code or whatever, basically. And with this code, Indy's like, well, you need me to go along. She's like, I don't need you. And then, of course, she realizes Indy might be the only one that can help her get to this. And so they decide that they need to find somebody that can help them scuba dive to get to this wreck because the Romans took the sheet or the encryption or whatever the fuck it was and they sank it to the bottom of the ocean with their ships and so Indy is like oh well I know the best frogman in all of ancient Greece so they go and they find Antonio Banderas who Puss and has boots. Like a little what's that? Puss and boots. they find Puss in Boots they find Puss in Boots and he goes Indiana Jones I just found the wishing star of course I'll help you find the, the code that you I'm need the next and they go, can we just keep it as a bit where like he's just Puss in Boots now because yeah. I think it'd be funnier. It's better than whatever the fuck his character was. Which, uh, was, which, which was decent, but like, I think it'd be funnier for this. Yeah. Just like, because of like what happens later. Yeah. Um, so anyways, um, they get on Puss in Boots' fishing vessel, and they go out to sea, and uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is doing magic tricks and shit, and Harrison Ford stands there and watches it, and he's like, I don't believe in magic, which again... I do kind of love the stubbornness of it. Like, literally, Indiana Jones has seen the power of God. He's witnessed actual fucking voodoo. He's witnessed somebody die from the Holy Grail. And he's seen fucking aliens. And he goes, I still don't believe in fucking magic. It's like, dude, what is it going to fucking take to affect you, basically? Um, but I do to like To be how fair, this... in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he was technically closing his eyes. True, true. I guess he could have just assumed all the Nazis ran off. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even though he heard blood curdling fucking <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh god. Anyways, um, but I do like the moment that him and Helena have here on the boat where he talks about how like if he had the dial, he'd go back in time and save his son from enlisting and everything like that. Like it's a touching scene and everything, and it does kind of show like Indy wishes he could have been the better father that he was. And then I kind of take away from that moment a little bit. I'm like, dude, your kid was shy of fucking LaBeouf. What was there to redeem him? <laughs> I mean, and that's the part where I was thinking... Because, like, I know I haven't finished uh, Kingdom of the, Crystal, of the Crystal Skull, but that's what it's called, right? Yeah. But, like, I don't know. Like, I know I haven't finished it. But, like, I was watching that scene, and I was actually about to tear up, but then I was just thinking, wait. Yeah, he's referring to the sun in Crystal Skull. Yeah. And for me, like, it kind of removed the, like, the emotional connection for me. Because on one hand, yeah, it is Indiana Jones saying, I miss my son. But on the other hand, it's like, was he really ever gonna come back 
and th and this is their excuse is just to have like an emotional scene like that pretty took much. me out of it a little bit yeah yeah um and yeah i don't know like it it didn't and then after that like helena shaw's like you're still wearing the ring and that was gonna lead to like one of the most baffling things that happens in the end in my opinion yeah um anyways but once they finally get to the destination that they need to get to um antonio banderas or puss in boots is kind of like all right so when you go down there there's some fucking eels that are in the ship don't get bit by them or you'll fucking die also you have three minutes to breathe in the oxygen before you go crazy and little teddy who's basically a new short round who's not as good as short round and i basically forgot he was in the movie half the time because his character is nothing um he's like oh the snakes or the eels look like snakes and harrison ford goes shut the fuck up don't say that don't fucking ever say that again and so they go down into the abyss where it's just all green screen basically and really bad cg shit um i can't buy 80 year old harrison ford scuba diving that again my suspension of disbelief was just through the fucking roof it was gone basically at that point um, they go in there, they find the little piece that they need, and then, uh-oh, Indiana Jones gets attacked by eels. That look like snakes. And uh, I was thinking, okay, well, Indy's going to have an incredibly clever way of getting out of this. He doesn't. He just kind of flails his arms, and then the eels fuck <laughs> off, and he, he gets out. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but I mean, after... at least Puss in Boots was animated very well. Like, I didn't know he could swim. Yeah, neither did I. I did like he played his little cheerful songs as they uh, were doing their little quest. Yeah, exactly. uh, but, but after that, Mads Mikkelsen and the Nazis show up. They kill everybody on the boat besides the kid, which I was kind of like, why the fuck would you not also kill? The I guess Nazis don't kill children, which seems out of character for Nazis. Um, but anyways, <laughs> so... They all resurface after their airlines are cut. They're brought onto the boat where Mads Mikkelsen is like, I need you to decipher this for me, Dr. Jones, because I don't speak this. And he's like, I won't do it. Which, again, it's, that's in character for Indiana Jones. He wouldn't do the Nazis bidding. Um, and so, as punishment, they fucking kill Puss in Boots. They waste all the time <laughs> They fucking life. told them. That was so brutal. They, it was unnecessarily brutal. Like, it, he even let out a little... Yeah! <laughs> He went, he went his dying breath, he went, who is your favorite fearless hero? Yeah. Oh, God. It was so sad. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but then Helena is very quick to be like, yeah, I'll help you decipher it. And so she helps decipher it word for word for the Nazis. And then she has like this little stick of dynamite that she stole that Indy lights. She throws at the Nazis and then they escape on their boat away. But here's what bugged me about it. So she still full on deciphered it for the Nazis, but was like, oh, I was very vague about it. And then the way the Nazis discover that they're going in the other direction is Mads Mikkelsen comically pulls out a pair of binoculars and watches them sail in the other direction. It's so fucking goofy. It's so dumb. It is. Like, it's so, like, I get it. Like, every time Belloc showed up in Raiders, it was kind of like, oh, wow, the Nazis keep finding a way to find us and stuff. But it made more sense organically because, like, they were digging on a site surrounded by Nazis. And then when they were transporting the Ark, it was Nazis doing it by truck. And the Nazis took a boat that they put the Ark on the submarine. So Indy, like, it made it organically why the Nazis were always catching up with Indy. And this... It's just fucking goofy. Like, half the time I was like, how the hell did the Nazis even know that Indy would be out there? Like, there's no way that they would know. They'd have to make a guess. Because 
even after Mads Mikkelsen sees him with the binoculars, he has no fucking idea where they're going, right? Like, and no way, but yet somehow he fucking finds them, and it bugs me so much. On top of that, it's like, it makes the plot predictable. It really no. does, yeah. Like, it's like, oh, he's headed east, so, like, at some point in the back of my mind, it was, like, nagging at me. It's like, they're gonna find him, I guess. Yeah. Like, Nazis usually do. And I don't know. It's just not really as engaging if you know where the plot's going. Correct. And yeah. there is there is a point where like it's kind of that, but like it's presented in a interesting way. I'm talking about the twist for this movie that oh, made okay. it okay. But like I don't know. Like I do you know what I'll I'll share my thoughts later. Okay. Um, so after this, they they make it to whatever place in Greece where they're like, oh, we're gonna find the ancient burial ground of Archimedes. And so they go into this dig site where they have to climb up this side of the mountain to get towards the tomb. And I do like how as Indy's climbing up, he's like, my bones ache. Oh, I've been shot nine times once by your father. Oh, I'm getting too fucking old for this. I'm like, okay. You're just playing into the fact that Indiana Jones is old. Like, we fucking know this. Like, even fucking Shia LaBeouf makes a comment in the last movie. He's like, what are you, like, 80? And I think Harrison was 65 at the time that movie was made. Um, but I, it's just kind of like a goofy little moment where you're like, we get it. He's not the adventure serial character anymore. So just fucking kill him at this point because there's no appeal. Um, but they cross a little bridge. Then they go through a little bug section. But none of the bugs are practical. They're all CGI, which... It's kind of fucking lame. Um, and then after they get through the bugs, they get into this room where it's surrounded by methane. And then they have to push this boulder down, which causes the floor to collapse or whatever. And they slide. And then they make it into Archimedes' tomb. And just somehow they open the tomb and Archimedes is wearing a watch. And it's implied that Archimedes had already traveled through time. And then the Nazis just magically show up because, yeah, they just, you know. Um, oh, and I should mention the Teddy character kills the heavy in the movie by drowning him so indiana jones which i get it harrison could not fight a guy like that in his 80s but uh the heavy of the indiana jones villains was killed by a kid that just drowns him with handcuffs i thought i don't know i i actually kind of like that like i know that he's not as great a short ground no nobody's as good as kihi kwan yeah but like at the same time i'm like looking at his like i'm bd I think this is like this is his like debut role yeah yeah so like in some ways like this is basically trying to be like every indiana jones movie in one i think and it's not working like in some ways it's like oh it's like temple of doom where like they have like a little kid that falls around that's like kind of impressionable on people and you have like the dynamic between uh like a godfather and a daughter that's there and then obviously we can't forget about the nazis i don't know it's like it's it works it sounds cool in a vacuum Mm-hmm. But like an execution, and or at least like what we got, it just doesn't work. Not at all. But I don't know. It it, it just disappointed me, I guess. And chalk it up to like me not being the biggest Indiana Jones fan, says like 
as most people. Maybe it's one of the reasons why I think it's like me like mediocre in general, but like I don't know. I just wish there was more there. I guess. Sorry I went on a little side tangent a little bit, but No, yeah. it's 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 completely fine. Um so the Nazis make it to the tomb where they're like, Haha, Dr. Jones, you've found the other half for us. Now we're gonna be able to use this to travel back in time. Um, and I do kind of like how Indiana Jones finds somewhat a clever way to get out of it. He steals a gun. He kills two Nazis. Mad Mickelson gets away. Indiana Jones gets shot. And at first I was like, oh, is he like dying? Because like he's not able to get out of there and Helena has to kind of help him somewhat. Uh, and then the Nazis take him and they load him into the back of a van. And I was like, so is Indiana Jones dying? Like, I'm very confused. And then Helena and Teddy chase after him. And this is where Mads Mikkelsen reveals his master plan with the Dial of Destiny to him. He's like, so I'm going to use the dial to go back to 1939 to one of Hitler's like big moments or whatever. And I'm going to kill Hitler and take his place because I know all of the mistakes that he made and I can course correct it so the Nazis win the war. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, this can't possibly work because one, even if he goes back in time and kills Hitler, you're killing the literal like leader of the Nazis and nobody's just going to be okay with that. Like there would be dissent. He would probably be looked at as a traitor. People would fucking kill him. Nobody's going to believe he's from the fucking future. So it just creates all of like these plot holes and like little things in your head that go, this plan does not make a whole lot of sense. And then on top of that, Indiana Jones was laughing at him. It's like, you're not going back to this time, I think. Yeah. You're not going back to 1939, and then Mads Nicholson was, like, being fucking frightened. Yeah. Like, that and was also, one of the, on... the actual good parts, kinda, was, like, the not knowing where the movie was gonna go once they take off in the plane towards the time fissure. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, you kinda, yeah. That, that if anything, that's, like, the part where it's kinda like Crystal Skull, where it, like, jumps the shark. Oh, yes, very much. <laughs> And we kind of appreciate Indiana Jones for that. And yeah, it's like the religion part isn't tangible here. Like, on top of like Archimedes getting a watch. I, I think that seems a little bit absurd now in retrospect. Yeah, it really kind of is. Because I thought it was going to have like uh, a causality effect. And it doesn't really kind of have a causality effect to it. So... And like how the how this sequence ends is kind of what baffles me, and it really soured my experience. I think. Yeah, um, because I, I should mention so Helena and Teddy. Um, all, so Helena like catches up to the plane before it takes off and is able to sneak in under the landing gear, and then Teddy, that has no experience flying a plane whatsoever, just fucking flies the plane through a time portal. I was like, okay, whatever, I guess. I, I don't really give a shit. Yeah. Um, and so once they go through the time portal, you know, the Nazis think, oh my God, we successfully made it back to 1939. And then they look down in the water and there's a bunch of Roman ships that are attacking the city of Syracuse. And Indy starts laughing because he realizes that they're at the siege of Syracuse, which was a historic battle. But um, here's my big problem with it. The whole sequence is CGI. There's not a goddamn practical thing. I wouldn't be shocked if the behind the scenes where it was just a fucking practical plane behind a bunch of green screen because it looked like green screen the entire time. And I don't know, there's something kind of goofy about Nazis machine gunning Romans and getting fucking murked by them. There's just like, 
I get it's supposed to be kind of like campy and goofy and shit like that. And I get it still does kind of play into the the artifact leads to the demise of the Nazis or like the villains in some way. But it's just it's not that well pieced together. And then Helena Shaw later says, you're going to change the course of history. Meanwhile, that already changed the course of fucking history. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then the Romans are like, oh my god, they're dragons. Kill the dragons. And yeah, they like throw catapults and like, uh, what happens? Harrison Ford, I'm sorry. Indiana Jones grabs Helena with, with a parachute. And they just parachute. Yeah. Also, they shoot Mads Nicholson Nazi. And then he crashes, plane dies in a lame fashion. Uh, And we get to see him later. And he's like all like burnt up. He's like Red Skull. Yeah. (sighs) I don't know. And it, it, it also. It just now that the Romans see like that, would that not affect history in some way? I guess not, because by the end of the fucking movie, none of this shit matters. But um, so after Indy and Helena land, uh, Indy is like kind of mesmerized. Like, of course, Indiana Jones is always mesmerized by the artifact itself, but this time he's actually in a historical event and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm at the siege of Syracuse. And then Archimedes shows up and he's like, I want to stay here and help them and blah, blah, blah. And Helena's like, no, you can't do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of like, okay, like, this is playing into a moment where I'm like, that'd be really fucking lame if Indiana Jones just, like, stayed behind in history. Um, But then the entire, like, sequence of, like, tension there where Indy wants to stay, Archimedes is there with his guards, and Helena's trying to convince him not to stay, um, all happens off screen because Helena punches his lights out. And then Indy wakes up in a fucking bed where he's just got his wounds tended to him. And she's like, oh, yeah, I got you back. And it's kind of like... What what the fuck? Is it is it bad that part of me was like I kind of wished he stayed in in Greece or something? Um, I guess. Well, no. In a way, I do understand it because it would make sense. I guess in some way that Indiana Jones, a character obsessed with history, would want to stay in history. But at the same time, it'd also be kind of like I don't really know what he could benefit from staying in this time because like. He's art one, he's 80 years old, and two, like, fucking nobody in this time era is probably gonna accept him. They're gonna fucking hang him as, like, some sort of time traveling witch or some shit. Counter argument, uh, he's Indiana Jones. Oh, you're um, right. He could just he could throw the whip around and they'd be like, <laughs> my big whip and wipes out all the Romans. Oh my god, my whip will take out the Roman infantry. Exactly. Well, if you think about it, the siege of Syracuse fucking changed because the Romans retreat. Like they they already affected one of the biggest historical events. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm fuck so that. confused. I know. Like, um, like for me, and because like, I don't know. Like, it does make sense that like I guess it, it's a stupid idea. So like, if any, it's less baffling now in my opinion so like yeah so I-, I thought it was cool that she socks him and then she's he- I guess he's just bandaged off screen we don't get to see like a cool scene of them like coming back because it's not Indiana Jones focused yeah it's missing like the you remember the scene in Last Crusade where the, the Nazi crosses the seal and the whole like basically the whole thing collapses 
Like we're missing a moment yeah. like that where we kind of see like the artifact collapse in on itself or like Indy loses out on this. Cause like in each of the movies, if you think about it, Indiana Jones does not get the artifact by the ending. He just doesn't. Like it always is like he returns it or it gets stolen off screen or the government takes it or something like that. Um, in this one, presumably he just gets to keep the dial of destiny because why the fuck not i guess <laughs> yeah it's like oh this is the one thing that you get to keep um good job yeah good job uh, indy you get to keep a, a fancy dial um but the most bizarre thing about this ending is uh marion just shows up again for some fuck all reason to repair their marriage even though like it was established she didn't want to be with indy because of her grief and they don't even give a good reasoning as to why she's back. I like my headcanon is Solemn maybe just went and was like Indy's fucking dead to like trick her some shit like that. Um, but like they never give like a tangible organic reason why she's back. Yeah. Yeah, I I don't agree. Like I on top of that, like I the thing is I like Marion and Yeah, Ray, she's a great character. Except for, like, what what are your thoughts on the, eight, like, sorry, it's like a little bit of a, like, sidetrack thing, but like, I didn't agree with how they met, canonically. Oh yeah, because there's that line in the first one where she's like, "I was a child, I was in love, it was wrong," and you're kind of like, "Oh wait, Indy, what age did you meet this girl?" <laughs> yeah, so um, like, and. The relationship I never really agreed with, I guess, in the first place. So, like, for for me, at least. Okay, gotcha. And, uh, I don't know. Like, I guess it makes sense because they're both gray and old. I don't know. Yeah. It just, I mean, again, it, it just feels artificial for me. Yeah, they have that little callback scene where she's like, it hurts here, here, and here, which obviously in the first movie, Indy's like, it hurts here, here, and here, and she kisses all the spots, and so he kisses all her spots. Um, and then Sala takes Teddy and Helena and all of his grandkids out, and he sings his little tune or whatever, and they go to get ice cream. And then the movie just, you know, ends with a little iris of Indy grabbing his hat, and then the, the credits rolled. And all four people in the audience with me and my buddy did not say a goddamn thing. We all just got up and left. <laughs> oh, um, I just remembered because, like, I, like, I, it was hard for me to remember stuff in that movie. Uh, I watched it like kind of early in the morning, and apparently there is open captions. Oh yeah. So, yeah. I think it benefited because I, it was it was hard for me to follow the plot. No, that's completely fair. Plot is All not great. Play. But yeah, so yeah, it, it reminded me because yeah, no, Solo was singing his his mighty tunes, I guess. His little 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 tunes. Um, yeah, so. That's the end of Indiana Jones, presumably, because Harrison has accepted he's too old in Disney. This film bombed fucking hard. I, like, opening night, I saw this Thursday night, opening night, and it was me and my buddy and four other people. Nobody was in that fucking theater for Indiana Jones. And the box Damn. office returns right now. It only made, like, $130 million plus opening weekend. Um, yeah, this movie's probably bombing pretty hard. <sighs> yeah, no, and that's... 
that's a shame. But at the same time, I do think that we need to stray away from, like, these kind of... Not just, like, these kind of movies, but, like, these kind of remakes, I guess. Yeah. Because if you really think about it, I've, I've even asked my friends, I was like, how many of you care about Indiana Jones in this day and age? And half of them were like, I haven't seen the movie since I was little. So, it, one, it just feels like a gigantic misfire to bring this character back out one last time. But also at the same time, like, as sad as it sounds, like a character like Indiana Jones will be like culturally irrelevant in 20 years. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I like for what it was trying to set out like it's like oh look at indiana jones was always cool yeah like i remember i watched the trailers for it and i was honestly intrigued like yeah we we got fleabag in this we got a one character from logan we got Matt nicholson as the villain and harrison ford riding a horse like that looks so cool <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't know. Like, I I was really hoping for this to be, like, better yeah. than what we got. I don't know. It, it just disappointed me, I guess. Like, Because, yeah. like, at best, I think it's, at the very least, like, okay, at best. Like, But, like, at the same time, this does feel very mediocre for me. Yeah. I think, I don't know, I don't think this affects James Mangold as a director for me, because I, I do have to imagine Disney had some interference with this movie somewhat, because um, yeah. like I said, Mangold's made one of my favorite comic movies of all time, and Ford v. Ferrari's a great movie too, so like, I I don't think he's a bad director, he certainly is a competent director, it's just, it's, he may have not been the right choice for this kind of movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Uh other than that i i gave this a four out of ten and i'm probably gonna leave it at a four out of ten because like i said i don't hate this movie i also didn't love it i didn't think it was okay it was just kind of like a eh, you know for me indiana jones ended in 1989 when him and his dad and his friends all rode off into the sunset um the other two just kind of feel like what if scenarios or some shit basically yeah i personally was i was thinking about giving this a six and then i give it a five and i feel like on a bad day i'd even go as far as to put it like a four as well that's fair yeah well because because like i don't know like it's not offensive i think it's not really harmless there are some elements that i like some i dislike well, not some. A lot that I dislike, but... Yeah. I don't know, like, I honestly watched, like, a shitty Fast and Furious movie over this. Yeah. At the same time. I, I kind of agree with that, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, like, that's my thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, Fahrenheit, we managed to get through uh, a good movie and a, an, an Indiana Jones movie. Um... Oh fuck. Um do you do you have a do you have a closing monologue you'd like to use from Asteroid City? I think it's been fried from my memory. No, <laughs> that's completely fair. I think Indiana Jones broke us. Yeah. Um well traditionally we usually have a bit to close out this, but um Danny's not here to force one and uh we we didn't really set anything up other than this was a television broadcast. So uh, yeah. So wait. So I, I what's guess... 
what's the story here so yeah what is this what is the purpose you know what hold on i let me take off my lapel microphone let me go backstage fahrenheit can i come into your trailer for a second yeah what's up i don't understand the character of hayden i don't understand what is supposed to happen to him like what is the point of him getting mad at the dial of destiny like i i don't understand the character like you're the director you have to understand the character i mean i personally don't know maybe if anything you should also just stay away from skyline chili and just move out of ohio straight up but at the same time maybe you should also just watch better movies like asteroid city or start reviewing other things find some purpose oh my god you're right you're right fahrenheit i shouldn't let the bankruptcy of my podcast take over anymore i'm not gonna let danny force me to watch things i don't want to see anymore i'm not gonna make shitty podcasts where i feel like shit by the ending everything's gonna change i'm gonna watch what i want i'm gonna do what i want i'm gonna oh a text from danny we're watching real rob or i'm going to kill you <laughs>